0: I'm Josh Hammer.
1: And I'm Batya Ungersargon.
0: And we are back for another episode of The Debate, a podcast by Newsweek. So today we're going to be talking about Russia, a topic that has long been at the forefront of the American geopolitical conscience, obviously. But it's taking on kind of renewed interest over at least the past five years of kind of the Trump and I guess now the post-Trump era. So, Badi, why don't you just briefly tease for us who the debaters will be and maybe uh, what kind of questions are you hoping to ask?
1: Yeah, we're super excited. We have Alexis Murachik, who's a researcher at the Heritage Foundation, and we have Joshua Shifrinson, an assistant professor at Boston University. And they're going to be debating to what extent is Russia a big threat to the United States? And one of the things I really want to ask them about is whether this is actually A proxy debate in a way, by which I mean, is this actually a conversation about something else? Because I tend to think that a lot of our foreign policy conversations are really about our own anxieties about ourselves as Americans and our place as America. So I'm definitely going to be asking about that. What about you, Josh?
0: I'm thinking not exclusively that's overselling it, but I'm thinking predominantly about China. Um, That is kind of the elephant of all elephants. That is really kind of what's going on here. Um, And look, Russia is a threat in its own right. Um, No one would deny that. They obviously have a a, a sprawling nuclear arsenal going back to the Cold War era. um, Putin is not exactly a friendly actor. There's all sorts of election interference, sanctions. I mean, we're all familiar with kind of the long list of uh, Russian misdeeds, but the extent to which russia plays into the separate china exchange whether maybe whether they're actually separate maybe whether they're related i that's kind of an area that i'm going to try and probe and explore a little further here i think
1: you know something that i've noticed recently uh that was explored really well by a russia expert called peter pomerantsev is the way in which espionage has changed when it comes to russia so you know for the longest time the point of you know trying to kill somebody was to not get caught right your spies would go out and kill people and it would be like oh was it this person was it that person and now it seems almost like Russia goes out and tries to kill its adversaries but the point is to get caught like there's very little effort expended in hiding who is behind these poisonings and you really saw this with the poisoning of Alexei Navalny the most famous uh, Russian dissident and I, to me, that's very much a sign of a weakening threat, a weakening superpower, because when you're really powerful, you don't actually need people to see you committing these kinds of these acts. And so to me, the fact that the message is now get caught doing it is that Putin needs us to see him as an inflated threat because he just doesn't have, you know, the, 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 the real power behind it to back up the saber rattling. So that's something I'm also looking to, to hear about.
0: Yeah, no, really interesting. I'm actually really happy you brought up the concept of espionage in general. Um, one of my kind of lesser known dorky traits, uh, I'm a huge James Bond buff. I, I'm obsessed with James <laughs> I Bond. Did not I like, know that, Josh. I've read all the books. I,
1: <laughs> Who's the best Bond?
0: Uh, Daniel Craig actually is the Bond who actually brings out Ian Fleming's spy to real life. If you want to go based on kind of the OG Bond as to who it's supposed to be, you can obviously downplay Sean Connery's kind of, you know, uh, paradigm shifting uh, encapsulation of, of that spy figure. But all I was going to say was, you know, I think back to kind of espionage and, you know, my favorite Bond book and quite possibly my second or third favorite Bond movie is from Russia with Love. It's kind of like the quintessential Cold War story. Um, if you believe John F. Kennedy when he said this, Jack Kennedy, he said that From much with love was his famous book growing up. Uh, you know, he obviously was kind of a Cold War president. So query whether this was just a good politics for him. So thinking through this issue for for myself, I kind of wonder if there's some sort of like implicit, almost like romantic like nostalgia factor here going on here, whether or not there's something going on in the American political conscience, whether we we we, we kind of want to be in conflict with Russia. And again, no one's suggesting that Russia is a friend here, but I just wonder whether there's any number of people like me, um, and I didn't, I was born in nineteen eighty nine. I was literally born the year um that that the berlin wall fell so it's not like i grew up in the in the cold war era but i still kind of felt like it was kind of like uh just in, inculcated me at a young age here so i wonder how many americans agree with me on that sense but um anyway that's enough uh, personal musings about 007 and all that that entails here no i think um, that's a
1: really good point like There's something a lot sexier about being in a Cold War with Russia than in an economic war with China. I totally agree with you. And I think that's really influencing the public debate. So without further ado, let's engage in that debate. We have Alexis Moracek and Joshua Shifrinson here to debate whether Russia poses a real threat to the United States. Stay tuned. This is The Debate at Newsweek.
0: Okay, welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So without further ado, let's dive right in here. We're debating Russia. So Badia, why don't you tell us a little bit about our debaters for today?
1: Yeah, we're really, really excited to have Alexis Murachik, a researcher at the Heritage Foundation, and Josh Schiffrinson, who's an assistant professor of international relations at Boston University. And we're going to debate, um, is Russia really a big threat to the United States? I can't imagine a more important topic. It's something that we talk about a lot. And we're just thrilled to have you both on to discuss this. So I think everyone here probably agrees that Putin is probably not the greatest guy on the planet. Um, There's a lot of agreement probably there. So let's start with what you disagree with about. Um, Let's start with you, Alexis. Why don't you tell us your position?
2: So my position is that Russia poses a threat in multiple ways. It poses a conventional military threat um, because it is a threat to the 29 European members of NATO. And because Russia threatens those members of NATO, we are also part of NATO. And it is uh, part of collective defense And that if one of our NATO allies is threatened or under attack, Um, the US also feels that it's under attack. So or all all NATO members um, feel that they are under attack. Um, And so that is a way that Russia poses um, a threat to the United States. Uh, Russia also does not operate by the rules-based international order. Um, Putin has made this very clear um, and is more than 21 years of being in power. Um, And Russia also has a vast amount of conventional weaponry and a total military reserve force of 2 million. Um, So it is a conventional military threat in that way. Um, It also poses a hybrid threat because it has interfered in U.S. elections. This has been proven by the U.S. Intelligence Committee. Uh, It also tries to propagate disinformation in the United States and so discord among U.S. citizens. And this is a threat to our democracy. Um, And uh, Russia also poses a threat to U.S. interests in Syria, Libya, and Iran. Um, And this is in uh, multiple different ways. And also uh, Russia poses a nuclear threat because uh, it owns more than 45% of the global nuclear stockpile and um, its delivery systems um, which make those nuclear weapons be able to reach U.S. soil in about 30 minutes. So that poses an enormous threat to the United States. And all of my points are based on facts and not just my opinion. Um, So I believe that truly Russia is a threat to the United States. A lot of facts there, Josh.
3: Uh, So so a couple of things to just get on the table at the outset. I, I don't think Alexis and I disagree that Russia poses a potential nuclear threat. Uh, I want to flag that issue. And likewise, I wouldn't want to challenge the claim as to how many soldiers Russia has under arms. But basically, from there, we diverge pretty dramatically, at least in terms of on the core question of whether Russia is a threat to the United States. And I want to emphasize that point. Is Russia a threat to the United States? And on these points, I I, I think my colleague uh, and I rather starkly disagree. Number one, while Russia can certainly pose a military challenge, a conventional military military challenge around its hinterland, around its borders. This is not a threat to the United States. The United States has an interest in a stable European balance of power, something that has been announced for, for by U.S. leaders from Franklin Roosevelt onward. And in that sense, Russia, unfortunately, could conquer much of Eastern Europe, and the balance of power in Europe would be stable. I don't want to see that happen, but it could happen, and it wouldn't threaten the United States, wouldn't upset the balance of power, point number one. Point number two, while it is certainly true that Russia has meddled in American elections, has supported autocrats abroad, the link between support for autocrats abroad on the one hand and American democracy on the other hand is highly unclear. No one wonders, no one challenges. Uh, Let me rephrase that. Autocrats abroad don't threaten the uh, stability of American democracy at home. This isn't an autocratic resurgence. American liberalism isn't under duress because strongmen in Libya in Syria remain in power. American liberalism is under duress because of problems at home. And while it is certainly true that Russia has meddled in American elections and sowed misinformation, it is not the cause of those problems. It is exacerbating those existing problems. So it's a little bit much to blame Russia as the source of those ills. Um, Lastly, The question of rules-based international order, a huge issue, and I'll call it the liberal international order, since uh, I don't see a lot of rules in international politics, we'll call it the liberal international order. And and on this score, I think the problem is, again, um, you know, it's just overstated. It's certainly true that Russia undermines uh, norms in international politics, it's certainly true that it is a veto player in the United Nations, among other organizations. But again, number one, the United States doesn't have a great track record on these points. Let's avoid moral equivalency here for the sake of argument. The the, the, The reality is that U.S. interests aren't abetted by these organizations, and thus Russia can't pose a threat by operating in these organizations. So at least on all these points, I would agree that Russia is a problem, but it is not a threat.
0: So I kind of do wonder the extent to which uh, your disagreement is just a proxy disagreement for America's role in kind of maintaining or upholding the so-called liberal international order. Kind of reading both your pieces, I kind of took away that that might actually be what's going on here. I'm I'm curious, Alexis, if 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 you would agree with that, or if you kind of think that the disagreement between you and Joshua is a little little deeper than that.
2: Yeah, I think it's a little bit deeper. I think it's been shown that. Um, Putin merely has Russian interests in mind, not U.S. interests, and um, U.S. interests align with NATO interests around the world, uh, in Europe particularly, and so it it is shown, it is proven that Putin's interests uh, do not line up with U.S. and NATO interests, and so because of that, the rules-based international order is just, it's thrown into disarray. Um, Russia does not operate according to our interests. And so there's definitely an ideological um, part at play here.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. One other major area here, I mean, the the elephant in the room, from my perspective, when I think about Russia, when I think about Putin, when I think about everything going on in kind of uh, Eurasia in general, the the, the 10,000 ton elephant in the room, of course, is China, um, which from my perspective is the threat of all threats, that is the preeminent threat um, to, to the United States, to our allies, to, uh, frankly, the American way of life for the next century or two. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious uh, if that affects your various views of Russia. Um, phrased another way, uh, Josh, we'll kick it to you first. I'm curious if, if you think that it would be a better kind of uh, perspective for the United States to, to focus maybe disproportionately on China and whether that kind of colors your view as to kind of overextending ourselves and kind of uh, the hinterlands region that you referred to with respect to Russia?
3: It's a really wonderful question, and I'm glad you raised it because it absolutely does. The answer is 100%. The reality is the U.S. is going... There's a good argument to be made, and I think you outlined the argument pretty neatly, Josh, that the U.S. is going to need to devote time and resources and energy to combating a rising China in some way, shape, or form. And if that's all true, the last thing the U.S. should want to do is take positions that drive Russia and China closer together. And the more the United States treats Russia as a threat, the more likely it is to cause that phenomenon to occur, the more likely it is to drive Moscow towards Beijing and encourage Beijing to pull Moscow towards it, creating a bigger problem for the United States. If the U.S. is serious about competing with China over the long haul, the last thing the U.S. should want to do is push Russia towards China. It should instead uh, understand the limited threat that Russia poses, and instead, and uh, try to break or try to minimize. Let's just say Russo Chinese cooperation.
0: And, and Alexis, I imagine your response to that would be just kind of speculating here. I don't want to speak for you, obviously, but Russia and China are increasingly kind of conjoined, attached at the hip in many ways. Uh, there's kind of this new space race. Uh, the two are kind of c- uh, collaborating on uh, getting into like a new space age race, it seems. Uh, Gordon Chang of Newsweek, uh, our, one of our columnists, has been writing a lot about this of late. Uh, they're both kind of increasingly uh, involved in bolstering the Iranian regime and uh, the Iranian regime's various kind of proxies across the Middle East. So I, I, if I would guess, Alexis, you'd probably on by saying that there's no such thing as kind of isolating this issue that if you want to take them on you kind of have to take both on
2: i agree i think russia and china are threats on their own um and i even though we need to treat russia as a threat and this could um definitely threaten us on the end of china we cannot uh partner with russia in countering the rising china threat we, Because Putin cannot be trusted. He is not a viable international partner. And so we need to treat the Russian threat on its own and the China threat on its own. And yes, we have a lot of head of us in American foreign policy, but I don't think we can downplay um, either threat.
1: Our guests today are Alexis Murachek, a researcher at the Heritage Foundation, and Joshua Shifrinson, an assistant professor of international relations at Boston University. We're talking about Russia, China, where is the biggest threat to America. Stay with us. This is The Debate at Newsweek. Welcome back to The Debate a podcast brought to you by Newsweek. Our guests today are Alexis Muracek, researcher at the Heritage Foundation, and Joshua Shifrinson, an assistant professor of international relations at Boston University. We're talking about Russia and to what extent it still poses a big threat to the United States. Um, before the break, Josh asked about you know the big elephant in the room, and I have to admit, I thought he was going to talk about not China, but a different elephant, Trump. Um, Because I think in a way, Trump really changed the conversation about Russia in America. Um, You know, and in a way, I kind of tend to see us, I think a lot of uh, international conversations are actually reflections of how we see ourselves. So I wonder if um, both of you could talk about if you agree that the conversation around Russia changed because of Trump, and if so, whether it changed in a good way or in a bad way. Let's start with you, Josh. Josh.
3: Uh, it, it's it's a hugely important question, and I'm glad you're raising it. I, I think I would fundamentally agree. You know, on the on the left, as you were saying, the Democratic Party uh, has basically decided that Russia is the reason that, that Trump won back in 2016. I think there's very little evidence for that direct link. that undoubtedly played a role. and undoubtedly interfered. But nevertheless, the Democratic Party has focused on uh, Russia as, as the cause of Trump, and therefore is kind of externalizing some of its demo- some of its domestic anxieties. And certainly on the right, Trump himself would, took actually a fairly hawkish stance on many issues towards Russia, despite the rhetoric to the, to the side. And the GOP has more than happily gone along with this, and in some ways inflated the threat, because he didn't want to be seen as weak on Russia, given the perception. So we have this really, I, I would argue, unfortunate uh, meeting in the middle of the left and the right and treating Russia as a threat that is totally out of sync in my assessment and i think others assessment of the objective russian threat
2: yeah i would say that um russia definitely became more of a hot topic um, with the trump presidency um i would say that um, a lot more of the american public are following russia as a general issue nowadays um i would say i would agree with josh i would say that his rhetoric was pretty soft on russia but um his administration's actions on russia were very tough i mean his administration sold weaponry to Georgia and Ukraine. Um, he expelled Russian diplomats from US soil. And there are multiple sanctions imposed on Russia. Um, so it was interesting seeing that softer rhetoric played uh, against these tougher actions on Russia. Um, so it's, it's interesting coming now out of the Trump presidency and into the Biden administration, just um, comparing the two presidencies and, and their different approaches to Russia
1: although sort of similar thus far, right? Biden hasn't quite uh, done away with anything that Trump did. It, it Actually, the opposite, he's sort of furthering uh, these sanctions against Russia. And Alexis, one of the justifications for that has been the Russian meddling in 2016 and in 2020 in our elections. But I want to ask you about that because it seems to me there, and Josh, you, you alluded to this a little bit, like we're kind of projecting onto Russia what is actually... Our own spiritual failings in a way. Um, So, yes, there's evidence that uh, Russia purchased Facebook ads, you know, that they did their best to meddle in our elections, that they um, did their best to sow discord. But it seems to me that to show that they actually changed the results of the election You don't have to just show that they bought Facebook ads. You have to show that they changed people's minds with those Facebook ads, which, A, I don't know how you would prove that. I haven't seen any evidence of that. But B, like, isn't that kind of on us if we're susceptible to that? I mean, isn't that kind of our own like in a way, obviously, it's bad that Russia did that. But the thing that's exposed is not Russia's power. It's our own spiritual failings that we actually really need to take take a look at. What what do you say to that, Alexis?
2: I would say I partially agree with you. Um, so I would say that Russia, there were already rifts present in American society, and Russia merely expanded those rifts and exposed them for what they really are, and I would say exacerbated uh, the already bad situation in our democracy. And so I wouldn't say it's completely Russia's fault for what happened, but Russia definitely played a part and is to blame for interfering in both of our elections and. Uh, you know, there's there's continually that threat with cyber hacking. And I'm sure Russia will continue to try to interfere in our elections. And part of that is on us, we do need to build up our cyber defenses and such, and maybe talk more across the aisle with each other to try to uh, to lessen these rifts in society. Um, But I would say we can't discount the Russian threat also at play.
0: One of these areas, um, and I'm curious how both of you would view this, you know, I, I've worn a lot of hats in my fairly young career, and one of them was uh, I was a lawyer in, in, in Texas, uh, I'm bar in Texas, worked in both Houston and Dallas. I, I, I worked on a lot of energy transactions, very familiar with the uh, shale revolution, fracking, uh, all, the, all, all the great stuff going on in, in American oil and natural gas. And, you know, I, I wonder to what extent the geopolitics of energy export of kind of the American shale revolution, the fact that we're the the largest or at least one of the largest both oil and liquefied natural gas exporters in the world. Because, you know, historically, back in like the 70s and 80s, when there was kind of the, the Arab League boycott, the Soviets were kind of joined at the hips with the Arabs. The U.S. used to be way more dependent, right, on kind of the machinations of Soviet era energy policy in a way that were not necessarily, um, at least at face level, so dependent today. Um, so I guess Josh will start with you. Uh, does d- d- anything that I just said, this whole kind of revolution in American energy, does that uh, does that color your view of uh, of U.S. policy towards Russia?
3: Well, so 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 first of all, I want to give a shout out to the state of Texas, where so we both have connections, uh, somewhat inexplicably. Uh, I do yesterday. too. Oh, there we go. So, so <laughs> yes. there's a whole there's a whole Texas alignment here. And so. I wish I did. <laughs> uh, so, so, so so good on the Lone Star State. Um, but, but to answer your question, Josh, substantively, the geopolitics of energy, I think, play a big role here, though maybe not in the direction that you were hinting at, or at least my interpretation of it would be, would be a little bit different. What the American shale revolution and other uh, hydrocarbon revolutions have really brought to bear is just a large glut of energy supplies on the international market, Right, where, where the US is now a major oil exporter for the first time in, in, in a generation. And this has a big effect on the price of oil, which in turn affects with the resources that Russia can devote to military affairs, the resources that Putin has to bribe off his population to provide for social services. So what I think is playing a huge role here is actually the depressing supply. Of the price of oil, and that in turn actually lowers the threat that Russia poses. I think it was President Obama who made the remark that, you know, Russia with oil at a hundred dollars a barrel is a problem. Russia with with oil at fifty dollars a barrel, and I'm bungling the numbers here, but bear with me. It's just you know, it's just a regional problem, child.
0: Yeah, Alexis, I think Josh's point about kind of the supply side of the energy market here, I, I you know, we don't want to go into like a full like econ 101 <laughs> lecture or anything like that. But I think Josh's point there is well taken. I'm curious if you have thoughts um, specifically with respect to kind of Nord Stream 2. We uh, We've published a bunch of op-eds in Newsweek with uh, about Nord Stream 2. Um, it's, it, seems to, it seems to be an issue that is kind of lingering in kind of the background, not a whole lot of uh, immediate pressing action, so to speak. But I imagine that you think that it's a pretty pressing Western imperative to prevent Russia from constructing this pipeline, right?
2: I fully agree. I think Nord Stream Two poses a huge security threat, and that it should be stopped at all costs. The problem is that the project is nearly done, and I don't know if the project actually will be able to be thwarted uh, from its completion. Um, But I do think the Biden administration needs to be tougher regarding Nord Stream Two and impose more sanctions and. I definitely think the Western media needs to pay more attention to this issue, um, because it's, like you said, it's not really receiving any attention right now, and, and that's a problem. I'm wondering,
1: um, it's kind of a weird question, but what is something that each of you could find out tomorrow that would change your mind about this topic? Like what is something that if it would if it would happen, you would think to yourself, "Oh, you know, maybe Russia is a bigger threat than I thought, or maybe it isn't such a big threat. Um, let's start with you, Josh.
3: You, you know, I'm glad you're, you're asking a really interesting, really important question. In, in political science, I'm a political scientist by training, but don't hold that against me. We often talk about disconfirming evidence. Uh, and that's what you're really getting at. What well, we convince you that I'm wrong? Mm-hmm. And I, I think for me, it would be decisive evidence that. Uh, in the face of a growing Russia threat, let's say let's say Putin sent not just hundred thousand troops to the Ukraine border, but sent massive armies into Ukraine, put parked them at the Ukraine-Poland border. And in the face of that, Germany, France, Italy, Britain, the European members of NATO that have real mojo, real and real irons in the fire said, I'm out. And actually said, I'm not going to do anything about it. It would be a sign that the European balance of power hinges uniquely and entirely upon uh the United States. That would that would that would to war.
2: Alexis? Yeah, Batia, uh when you asked that, the first thing that came to mind was uh Georgia and Ukraine. So I would say that if so Georgia currently occupies 20% of Georgia's territory, the Republic of Georgia, I should say, not the US state. Um, but I would say if Georgia or if Russia pulled out its troops from Abkhazia in the Singh Valley region, also known as South Ossetia, and uh, completely left georgian territory and then also ended the war in the eastern donbass region of ukraine and pulled out of the crimean peninsula i would say that russia would be less of a threat but we would definitely need to keep watching it but i would say i would definitely feel a lot more reassured regarding russia if it were to do those things
0: one final question for me um I, I asked earlier about the extent to which this is kind of a proxy maybe for thoughts on kind of the liberal rules-based international order, so to speak. Um, I I also wonder the extent to which this maybe this is a proxy for kind of the enduring uh, importance or, or, for lack of a better term, of of NATO as kind of like a rallying organizational institution. Um you know, I, I, I thought a lot about NATO in recent years, especially as uh, Erdogan in Turkey has kind of amped up his bellicose rhetoric. And, of course, it seems to be, you know, the people who drafted the NATO charter seem to have been sufficiently short-sighted where they didn't include an express provision to kind of kick out a member. So um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering, like, uh, whether NATO, uh, as currently formulated, uh, basically, uh, A, whether it's still relevant, and B, whether your answer to whether it's still relevant kind of colors your perception about Russia. Um, So uh, we can start with you, Josh
3: so is nato still relevant and how does that color my view of the russia threat i'm going to punt on the question of whether nato is still relevant not because i don't have an answer to that but because it changes by the day but i'll just say that nato as currently constituted makes the russia threat loom larger than it really is you know when when the baltic states in particular were taken into nato in the early 2000s and you can go back and read congressional testimony on the mission of these days i i, I did that because um Um, a a, a masochist i suppose uh (laughs) but having done that no one expected to have to fight to defend them and now that we have to fight to defend them russia looms as a massive challenge to those states and to the extent that the u.s wants to sustain nato and present it as a enduring institution for now and for all time it has a massive headache on its hands those states are probably defensible militarily there's really nothing that the u.s can do about them short of going to war uh, going to nuclear war with moscow which the u.s is not going to do i don't believe for the sake of those states i'm sorry to any listeners in the baltic states I'm the deliverer of bad news on that front but i think to answer your question yes the more that the u.s treats nato as sacrosanct the bigger the russia threat looms the more the u.s realizes that hey nato as an organization might have been useful at time one it may not be as useful or at least NATO in its current construction may need to be tweaked in some way uh, the less threatening Russia looms today? I
2: would say NATO is definitely still credible. Um, it's been around since 1949. It's a very strong alliance, has 30 members currently. Um, Ukraine and Georgia are set up uh, for potential NATO membership, and they desire to be part of NATO one day. Um, and I would say just just looking at it, it is a, an extremely strong alliance. And um, yes, that does make the Russian threat seem larger, but... I don't think that I'm exaggerating the Russian threat in this way. I think it's it's just merely a fact that uh, several NATO members border Russia and there is that looming threat.
1: Why don't you each tell us what are the stakes of this debate? Real world stakes. You know, Alexis, Josh, what happens if we get this question wrong? Let's start with you, Alexis, and then Josh, you can close us out.
2: Yeah, I would say that the stakes of undermining the threat would be Exacerbated rifts in American society even more than we've seen in the past four or five years. Um, I would say that there could be um, maybe a potential war in the future. Um, I'm not for for sure. Obviously, I don't want a war, but um, we can't uh, we can't rule that out ever. Um, Also, the nuclear threat is present. I mean, Russia is continually improving its nuclear capabilities and its stockpile, and so we can't rule that out. So if we do not beef up our own nuclear stockpile and have that weaponry as a credible deterrent to Russia, I think that poses a huge threat. Um, And so I think there there are a lot of different ways um, that um, the U.S. could be at threat if we don't take the Russian threat seriously. And Josh, what are the stakes of overestimating this threat?
3: Nuclear war. Very simple. Uh, the U.S. is currently arming uh, groups in Ukraine. It's not really clear where the weapons are going. The U.S. seems to be wanting to tilt with Moscow in a number of ways. Moscow has noted, and I think by Alexis's point is well taken, it's a massive nuclear power. If It's not impossible to imagine miscalculation in the face of heightened U.S.-Russian tensions, and the U.S. ends up first in a limited shooting war, and then that could escalate into an all-out uh, conflict, the likes of which we have never seen before, and I certainly hope to avoid. And I'm not saying that to be overly dramatic, just to highlight the stakes of the game.
1: Listeners, you heard it here first. Nuclear war, if we overestimate it. Nuclear war, if we underestimate it. Thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, This has been so great. This is The Debate, a podcast brought to you by Newsweek. We'll be right back.
0: Welcome back to The Debate, a podcast by Newsweek we just heard a another lively erudite exchange between two people who I'm not sure they disagree as much as they think they disagree. But we did definitely get to some points where they disagreed pretty robustly at the same time. So what what were your kind of over, you know, your overarching higher level impressions and thoughts on what we just heard?
1: Everybody can agree that Russia is a bad actor. That Russia is doing incredibly dangerous things. Um, you know that you know Putin is not to be trusted. And then the question just becomes one of degree. I, I tend to agree with Josh Schiffrinsen that, um, that I think that the threat is really overblown and stems a lot from our uh, unwillingness to look at our own shortcomings as a nation on a spiritual level. (laughs) And it's very easy to sort of project those onto Russia and Russian um, electioneering and, and meddling when actually what Russia has done to America pales in comparison to what America has done to other countries. What do you think?
0: Very Marianne Williamson of you with the with, with the spiritual. No, we, I, I jest. You. We uh, Marianne is one of our regular columnists here in Newsweek, so a bit of an inside joke. We obviously love Marianne. Love Marianne. Um, I don't know Alexis personally. She, she 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 seems lovely. She works at the Heritage Foundation. Okay, as, as someone who kind of is the, a, himself speaking for myself, a product of the of America's conservative movement, I think it's important to kind of um, contextualize, kind of like you know where where Heritage fits into this, right? Heritage is kind of one of the Great, iconic, older, old school, conservative institutions that kind of really rose to power during the Cold War, kind of reached its culmination during the Reagan presidency. What was the Reagan presidency known for above all else, bankrupting and defeating the Soviet Union? So there's a lot of kind of um, there's a very rich legacy here, I think, for heritage and kind of institutions that are, that are close to heritage um uh for for Russia hawkishness. So that's not the downplay. I to be clear, I did not even comment on, on on the merits or substance, just kind of I think contextualizing what it what at least to an extent is going on here. Um look I, I, I find myself a little torn on this wanna be honest with you. Um I, I am I am a China hawk. That is really kind of like my number one foreign policy issue. I think China is by far the most important threat. Um, facing America, our allies, just the American way of life and really all that we care for and cherish. Um, but I really kind of see it both ways as far as how Russia plays into this. Um, I think Josh, the other Josh, was correct on the one hand that to you know to an extent, at least at a more theoretical level, level, we could kind of get into the nitty-gritty of like troop deployment stuff. It does make a little more sense to focus disproportionately and kind of buffing up like Taiwan and kind of more of our East Asian assets um, than kind of focusing excessively on the Republic of Georgia, Ukraine, Baltic States, whatnot. So I, I hear that, and that makes a lot of sense, but they really are kind of attached at the hip in, in, in many ways here. They are both very close friends of the Iranian regime, and it, it, it is kind of difficult uh, to an extent to disentangle there, but... Um, Anyway, um, I I thought, it, I thought it was great. Um, the tr- I was really happy that you asked about the Trump question. I thought that was uh, super, super important. And it's, it's kind of, it's difficult to talk about Trump and Putin, or excuse me, talk about Russia and Putin without talking about Donald Trump. So I thought, I thought that was really important and good for you to ask them about that.
1: I really liked your question about, aren't we really talking about ourselves and the liberal order? Because in a way, I think whenever, you know, we talk about foreign policy, there is an aspect to it um, where we're really talking about ourselves. And you really see this in conversations about Israel-Palestine, and you see this in questions about Russia, and you see this in questions about China. Like, we're actually um, at the heart of the issues are so often about ourselves. Like, when I think about China, and I agree with you, it is I think it's a huge threat to us as well. But I'm thinking about it from the point of view of, you know, the working class, like the economic question of outsourcing, manufacturing, things like that. Um, So I think we tend to attach at least emotions to topics that really kind of get us where we live in terms of our own domestic points of view. So I think that's definitely at play in Russia. You definitely saw that with how Trump changed the conversation. And it was just great talking to two smart people about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, it's important that like they both recognize that Russia does have the largest nuclear arsenal in the world after the United States. Um, We can't avoid the obvious implications of that. Now, they haven't spent a ton of money uh, militarily over the past couple of decades since the fall of the Soviet Union necessarily maintaining that arsenal, uh, at least at kind of an, a, at an America level. And kind of looking ahead here, it does seem that China is by far the bigger threat kind of prospectively. But in the present day, like Russia still does have a very a, a very formidable nuclear arsenal. Um, and like that obviously is not the kind of thing that we can take lightly here. It doesn't necessarily answer all, obviously, the kind of uh, nitty gritty questions about uh, what we should do diplomatically vis-a-vis Putin. But uh, look, I thought it was a great exchange and uh, I entrust the listeners enjoyed it.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Please write to us. We have an email address, the debate at newsweek.com. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you're debating in your homes with your friends. And we want to hear what you thought about this debate. So reach out to us and we will see you next time. This has been The Debate at Newsweek.